It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. Whether you or someone you know gets dementia, Alzheimer's, or another brain disease, the fact is, we're living longer and our brains change. What are the changes and how should we be dealing with them? How can we thrive into our twilight years? Susan Greenfield is a senior research fellow at Lincoln College, Oxford, and founder and CEO of NeuroBio. It's a biotech company that's developing an anti-Alzheimer's drug. Gary Small directs a geriatric psychiatry division and the UCLA Longevity Center at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. His research helped lead to the first brain scanning method that detects physical evidence of Alzheimer's in living patients. Sam Keen is a journalist and author who writes frequently about science. His latest book is The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons. Here are Susan Greenfield, Gary Small, and Sam Keen. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, very full house, so that's great to see. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, so in my book, the, the Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, I wrote a, about um, you know, kind of dramatic, fascinating injuries in brain history. You know, people who can't recognize animals suddenly after suffering a stroke or something. Siamese twins with conjoined brains. People who lose all fear of death. Kind of these really extreme examples and what we can learn about them uh, with neuroscience. But today we're going to talk actually more about the normal brain, about your brain, about my brain, and especially what happens to our brains as we age. We all know that we you know, sometimes kind of slow down a little bit as we age. Our memory might get a little fuzzy. We might feel a little bit more tired. But what's really the difference between normal aging and pathological changes or dementia or something like that? That's kind of what we're going to try to talk about a little bit today. The CDC, Center for Disease Control, says that in 2013, around 5 million Americans had Alzheimer's disease. And that's projected to rise to 14 million by 2050. And that's just one disease. So what can we do to stop things like this? Or is there anything we can do? And for insight and illumination into these questions, we have two distinguished panelists to address those topics. Uh, first, on my left here, is Susan Greenfield. She is a scientist, author, and broadcaster based in Oxford, England. She has held research fellowships in the Department of Physiology, Oxford, the College of France in Paris, and NYU Medical Center, New York. She has been awarded 31 honorary degrees from British and foreign universities. And in 2000, that's impressive, yes. <laughs> like buses, they all come along at once. <laughs> and in 2000 was elected to an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Physicians. She currently holds a senior research fellowship at Oxford University, Lincoln College, and is founder and CEO of a biotech company, uh, which you can find at www.neurobio.com, that is developing a novel anti-Alzheimer's drug based on her research into neurodegeneration. And on the far left is Gary Small. Uh, Gary Small is a professor of psychiatry and aging at UCLA, where he directs the Division of Geriatric Psychi Psychiatry and the UCLA Longev Longevity Center. Uh, he focuses on early detection and prevention of Alzheimer's disease and age-related cognitive decline, including brain scan techniques to detect Alzheimer's in living patients. He's written seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Memory Bible. And his most recent book is Two Weeks to a Younger Brain. Scientific American also named him one of the world's top 50 innovators in science and technology. 
Uh, so the session is going to work generally like this. I'm going to have both panelists introduce themselves, and then I have some questions for them. And then we're going to, at the end of it, turn it over to the audience to ask questions. So be thinking about anything you'd like to ask. Uh, so without further ado, if I could have each of the panelists just tell us a little bit about yourself. I think we'll start with Gary uh, to kind of give a clinical overview, and then we'll go to Susan. Clinical overview. So I don't start with kindergarten or anything <laughs> like that? If you want yeah. to. But back actually, you let me, you know, I started out, I was interested in philosophy. I even thought of becoming a concert pianist. But my, you know, my father was a doctor, and he gave me some advice. He said, Gary, you can do whatever you want in life. Just make sure you go to medical school first. <laughs> So, so I followed his advice, and I, you know, I got into it. I enjoyed it. I got very interested in research. I studied psychiatry in, in Boston and then geriatrics. And as I got more and more into geriatric psychiatry, I realized the big problem is that as our brains age, we forget things. And it's a very gradual process. And Sam mentioned some of the statistics about Alzheimer's disease. That's the big fear we all have. Uh, sadly, we don't have a cure for it at this point. We have some symptomatic treatments. But our work at UCLA has been focusing on early detection and hopefully prevention because we think we have a better shot at protecting a healthy brain rather than trying to repair damage once that damage becomes extensive. So in, in that journey and trying to understand and deal with those issues, I was fortunate to, to link up with a very talented brain scanning or brain imaging group at UCLA. We have some of the world leaders there. And we've developed PET imaging, uh, MRI imaging, so that we can really peer into the brain and find out what's going on very early in the process. And, and in fact, a number of years ago, we invented the first PET imaging method that could visualize the physical evidence of Alzheimer's disease, these little amyloid plaques and tau tangles that build up in the memory and thinking areas of the brain. And as we've studied these kinds of technologies over the years, we've discovered that, guess what? Those little plaques and tangles start building up years, even decades, before we have symptoms. Now, often when I tell people that, they get a little scared. They think, oh my god, I've got Alzheimer's in my brain. And we can talk about what that means later. But I think there's an upside to that. Because if we can detect the problem early, that means we can start treating early, or at least at this point, start testing innovative approaches to protect the brain. And in addition to the medical approaches, we've been very keen on looking at how lifestyle affects our brain. And in fact, it can do quite a bit. We all have much more control than we realize in terms of protecting our brain health and even staving off the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease for many years. So that's uh, kind of a brief overview of what we're doing. We have a lot of interesting projects. At UCLA, we have an Alzheimer's prevention project. We're identifying people in the medical record and those who are at risk and putting them on a lifestyle program to protect their brain. We've taken that technology that we invented at UCLA. We've licensed it. And we're now about to launch a phase three clinical trial with a with the company to try to commercialize that. And so we're very excited about the research that's going on in our projects at this point. And Susan? Oh, good morning, everyone. So um, unlike Gary, I hated science at school um, because it's all about the amoeba. Um, if ever you were subjected to learning about that, it's a, you draw a circle and then you draw an egg timer 
then you draw two circles, and that's the amoeba reproducing itself. It's pretty boring. Um, no one told me why distilling water was interesting, and frankly, I found that science was all about facts, um, and all you had to do was learn them and regurgitate them, compared to uh, history and literature, which was all about why people fell in love and why wars started and human nature and what makes an individual. So I ended up doing what we call in Britain classics, that's to say Latin, Greek, ancient history, and just for additional rigor, I also did maths. Um, so my background wasn't at all a scientific one, and I empathize with people who feel that scientists can be patronizing, use acronyms, use long words, and tell them they won't understand anything, because I have been there, so I know what that's like. Uh, that said, um, the, the study of Greek gave me an interest in philosophy, and in turn an interest in the mind, and when finally at Oxford, where you couldn't do philosophy on its own, I did it with psychology, I discovered this new way of doing things, which was a scientific approach, which I hadn't appreciated at school. And uh, I therefore switched to physiology and uh, in the end ended up doing a PhD in neurochemistry uh, without any basic chemistry whatsoever, which was, uh, says a lot for Oxford. I know some Oxford people here. Um, the professor of pharmacology, when I went through the interview, he said, um, do you know what a millimolar solution is? And that's the equivalent of saying to someone, have you heard of Shakespeare? And I said, frankly, no. And he said, well, never mind. You can tell us about Homer and the coffee breaks. And that, was, uh, that was how I started. Um, but the, the, the reason I say this is because I think science should be about questioning things. And if you come from an orthodox background, as I did, you do challenge dogma because you don't know the dogma in the first place. It's a bit like the bumblebee flying. Yeah? Um, and so it was then, um, to cut a long story short, when um, I came to work on neurodegenerative diseases, as you may be aware, Alzheimer's disease, which is the one that perhaps everyone talks about most at the moment, is not a natural consequence of aging. If you remember anything, remember that. It is not a natural consequence of aging. It's a disease of older people, but it's not a natural consequence of aging. And if it's a disease, there must be an underlying mechanism. And if only we could discover what that mechanism was, we could intercept it and stop the progress. Now, although there's much commendable work going on, um, with slowing things down, with encouraging healthy lifestyles, in my view, we will only get to where we want to be and solve this huge burden that is going to be facing society, both in humanitarian terms and socioeconomic terms. We'll only be able to solve that problem by intercepting that mechanism, by getting a treatment that effectively stops any more brain cells dying. Okay, so to cut a long story short, and again, rather like Gary, I'm happy to amplify things, but this is just a, an overview of where... Um, I'm coming from and in my approach, which is very different from the conventional one, um, and that is to challenge the idea that the main target should be this amyloid, which Gary's mentioned. Amyloid, after the Greek for starch, um, are deposits in the brain that characterize, um, especially post-mortem, the Alzheimer brain. But I would argue back, if that was the good target, if that was the sole um, problem, then two problems. Why is it, with all the muscle of the pharmaceutical industry, which has targeted amyloid, there has been no effective drug clinically as yet for the last 10 years? Um, and secondly, why is it that given every cell in the brain has the potential to generate amyloid, why is it only certain cells in the neurodegenerative disorders, in particular Alzheimer's, are selectively vulnerable? So if that is the case, although that's part of the jigsaw, and in science we tend to rubbish each other very quickly in a rather stupid way, and of course we're all partly right and all partly wrong, and we zigzag forwards and all try and really find the truth. Of course amyloid plays a part, but in my view, and perhaps Gary will part company with her, if not, I'm happy to discuss this, um, we need to find the more constraining feature of the brain that then in turn 
may trigger the production of amyloid, something that characterizes only a certain population of brain cells. And very briefly, what we um, now know, contrary to, again, the accepted wisdom, the neurodegeneration doesn't start in the outer layer of the brain. It starts deep down in an area called the brainstem, which is an extension of the spinal cord. It's a very basic hub in the brain um, that contains all the very basic features uh, requiring uh, functions for living. But it contains brain cells that sort of work like a fountain going throughout the brain. And these cells come from a different part of the embryo, um, even when the brain is just a sandwich before it is it's fully in its three-dimensional configuration. It's the, a different part of the, of the embryo. And that means it might have different properties, and indeed they do. And what these cells are able to do, which un unlike other cells in the brain, and I think this is the clue, is they've retained their ability to regenerate, to grow again. And that might sound like a good thing, but actually, someone talked about context yesterday, and I think context is a really important issue because in the context of the immature brain, that's fantastic. The mechanisms used are just what you want for promoting growth. However, those same mechanisms, to going at the same extent, if they are activated inappropriately in a mature brain, will actually be a bit like Jekyll and Hyde. They turn toxic. And what we've done is to identify this pivotal toxic molecule, um, to identify its target, and even now to patent an agent that intercepts it. So that's the stage we're at, and I'll happily explore more with you. But um, basically, my own view, um, which is not an accepted one necessarily, is that neurodegeneration is an aberrant form of development. Well, thank you, both of you. Thank um, you. <laughs> and I actually, so for the first question, I actually wanted to, I guess, kind of jump off something Susan had said, um, which is that how do you tell the difference, basically, between normal cognitive aging and maybe a little bit of mental decline as we get older and something that is pathological? I mean, obviously, if you go in and look at the actual brain, you can tell the difference sometimes very easily. But how does a person know, just sitting there, going through their day-to-day -day life, know that something is wrong as opposed to just the normal kind of thing going on? So this is, this is a tough question. It's, it's probably the most frequent question I, I hear in my clinical practice because so many of us are walking around and we're forgetting where we put our keys. We see someone and we think, uh, you know, I know who you are, but you just can't think. I don't have my name tag on right now, but the solution actually would be if everybody just wore name tags all the time. All the time. This would be yeah. an easy thing. But uh, that's probably a hard uh, thing. You probably have a better chance of getting your drug approved before we do that. <laughs> but, you know, we have these what's con considered normal aging changes, and we joke about them. I think underneath the humor is some anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the question is, when does that become so difficult that we need to see a doctor and it becomes something pathological. We see it as a disease. And I think there's a very, uh, there's a gray area where you get there. I mean, we, we actually have three major areas. There's normal aging, where it's mild. And then there's a state called mild cognitive impairment, where it's more challenging and you're compensating more for those declines. And so it may take longer to do things because you're always checking and, and double checking. And then there's a point where it becomes so difficult, you actually need help from others. And I think in general, that's where we define the problem, is when somebody has what we call dementia or major neurocognitive disorder, where it's defined at a social level where you, you can't function on your own. Now, in, in many ways, as a scientist, as a physician, 
that's unsatisfying to me because you know when I think of diseases, I think of here's a specific cause. You've got pneumonia. Take this antibiotic. Now you're cured. That's a disease. So you know, in in in, in one way, here's where I might disagree mm -hmm. with you, Susan. Respect. No, you can. You don't have to mind. <laughs> don't use the subjunctive. Okay, I'm going to disagree. Yeah, disagree. So, I mean, and it is, yeah. and it actually disagree. is a disagreement about semantics because. How do we define Alzheimer's disease? If we define it as the way all, uh, Aloise Alzheimer defined it initially, amyloid plaques and tau tangles in the brain at a certain threshold, threshold level, then yeah, okay, that's a disease. But what about, the, does the brain really know that there's only uh, eight plaques in that area and not 10? I mean, why is that not a disease? And when you get a couple more plaques, now all of a sudden you have a disease. Can I just jump in there? That's another reason I don't subscribe to the amyloid hypothesis is because we know in post-mortem healthy brains you can see amyloid deposits. Well, let's, go to, know, let's say, let's say tangles. Okay? Oh, no. Let's <laughs> okay, go so tell me what tangles are. Okay. So tangles are um, another histopathological feature uh, where you have these little tubes that are in cells that they're all muddled up. They, they're hyperphosphorylated, they're called. So you might hear the term hyperphosphorylated tau. And it's these two histo histopathological features. But to the best of my knowledge, they're pretty ubiquitous as well in the brain. They are, but yeah. if you look at tangles versus plaques, tangles really correlate with the disease, with the forgetfulness, much more than plaques. And one of the problems, even though I'm a big fan of brain imaging and PET mm. imaging, we got a problem right now we because have. we have approval for several PET ligands that can, can, they can show the, the amyloid in the brain. But guess what? You know, people go in and they're 30 or 35, and they've got amyloid in their brain. So what mm. do I tell them? Well, you're going to get Alzheimer's when you're well, 85. Well, I could have told you that without the scan. Yeah, but I think we're going around in circles. If we define it by amyloid and then say, oh, well, therefore it's not a disease. You know, I think yeah. let's, if we can forget about defining it in terms of the neuropathology, because okay. I could define Alzheimer's as only when those brain stem cells start to try and grow again, that's when it's the disease. Which yeah. well, Depends how you define a disease. And if it's something debilitating that not everyone gets, then surely that would be a good definition, which is what Alzheimer's is. It's something debilitating that not everyone gets. So, yeah. but to get back to Sam's question, I mm -hmm. think it's a, it's a difficult question to answer mm -hmm. clinically. Mm -hmm. And what I advise people, if they're concerned about their memory or their cognitive abilities, go to the doctor. Because we do know from the studies we have is the sooner you get treatment, the better the outcome. The, the treatments right now are what we call symptomatic. So they improve some of the symptoms or at least stabilize the disease temporarily. But we find if you use those treatments early on, you have a better outcome. And also, if you have cognitive impairment, there are lots of things that can cause that besides Alzheimer's disease. You can get it from a thyroid imbalance or from anemia or from uh, a bacterial infection. In fact, one of the first patients I saw with dementia when I was in my training, uh, I cured his dementia. He was taking 10 milligrams of Valium a day, and I stopped his Valium. <laughs> so it's always, so I think, that, that's important. Can you give a, either of you give a brief example of something where, or maybe a few examples of something that people shouldn't worry about because it's just normal. And then you mentioned a little bit, like if you are dependent on other people, that's the stage at which you really probably should do something or get some help. Well, you know, the simple examples people give are, you know, if you forget where you place your keys, that's normal. If you forget how to use your keys, that's okay. abnormal. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think when it's, becomes more severe. When, when people start repeatedly asking you the same question, when they, you know, for example, how many of us here have ever uh, lost their car in a parking lot? Anybody? 
it's not pretty. I've done it, and yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very disconcerting. And a lot of that is normal aging because we're not paying attention. We're not focusing on where we parked it. Now, if that happens every week, that's abnormal. If it okay. happens once in a while, it's not abnormal. Okay. Um, Susan, anything you wanted to add to...? Well, between what's normal and what's not normal. Yeah, anything on... <laughs> well, it's interesting culturally. You think um, 50 years ago, no one really had heard of Alzheimer's, even though Alice Alzheimer's had reported it. Mm -hmm. And you were used to Auntie Flo being a bit gaga, you know, and a right. little bit. And I think that um, it may be that in other societies, in other places, what would be, to us, dementing behavior or um, unacceptable uh, behavior in certain societies might be just an older person who knows a little bit Away they don't the think about it as a disease. They, they might not yeah. do that, yeah. So um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily um, okay. no, that's the issues. But, um, but I think also what's interesting as well, and I just want to say this just in case no one else does, and I just want to mm -hmm. flag it, yeah, and I'm sure you'll empathize with this, um, is I'd like to put in a real bid for the carers because after a certain time, the patient loses insight and they're like little children. Whereas the carers who may be the soulmate of that person um, you know, you could have the person who's doubly incontinent, they're changing nappies, and, you know, they have diarrhea, and the person, their ex-soulmate, doesn't even know who they are. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine, and quite often, I'm sure you've had the same, the carers will say, this is a living death. Mm -hmm. And I just feel that people forget to accord the carer, in fact, the same consideration that they might for someone who is bereaved because mm -hmm. they're undergoing the same sense of loss mm -hmm. as... Um, so I just want to put it in there. There may be even carers in the room, but you know, people forget that aspect of them. And they, they think about the patient, but after a while, I'm sure you'll agree, the patient, as long as they have an ice cream and the sun shining and people aren't frightening them too much. There's sort know. of a social component. Uh, yeah, there, yeah, there is that element which mm -hmm. I think makes the condition way more devastating than heart disease or cancer okay. might be simply yeah. because there is that terrible sense of loss. Okay, thank you. Um, so... You, this might uh, spark a little bit more disagreement, but um, <laughs> what is the best guess out there right now for what actually is causing the problems? Is it the plaques and the tangles <laughs> right. that are the problem? Are they a side effect of something else? Or Actually, no, I think we probably will agree more on oh, this. Oh, no, okay. that's a shame. No, no, they, they, oh, they want okay. to yeah. We'll a find fight. some controversy. Yeah, no, in Britain, we're always very adversarial. But, you know, this, this, is a huge, this, this is a big yeah. challenge because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the disease was defined by the plaques mm. and tangles. But the brain is very complicated. There's a lot going on. For example, if you look inside those plaques, you see <clears> evidence <throat> of inflammation. So inflammation is, is a good thing. You know, if you sprain an ankle, uh, your, your ankle gets red and it gets sore and it gets hot, and that means your inflammatory cells are repairing the debris, and, and it's great. Trouble is, as we age, that inflammatory system kind of cranks up too much, and we have too much inflammation. It's not only just aging, but obesity, overweight, other risk factors. And so I think that inflammation is a big problem, and we really have to focus on that as well. And there are other mechanisms. There's the immune system. There's lots of things. And one of the problems we've had with the field with drug discovery is that we've become, uh, you know, monomaniacal. I mean, there's, you know, we actually, we talked about the plaques and the tangles. It's the beta amyloid plaques. And the people who subscribe to that theory, we call the Baptists. And, and it's the tau tangles, we call them the tauists. And so people, they, you know, the scientists, they get riveted with this one approach, and as the ship is sinking, they're still hanging on to that. So I think we have to be, we have to 
broaden our uh, discovery portfolio so we don't mm -hmm. miss yeah. innovative approaches. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. No, can I just pick up on that and then I'll say why, how I think it's caused. Yeah. Um, for those people who here aren't scientists, and I suspect that's the majority, um, when you do science, it's not like doing an ordinary job. It's like bringing up a kid. It's yours. And you invest in it a lot of your own imagination and ideas um, so that you're not interchangeable. No two scientists will interpret data in the same way, plan experiments in the same way, and then um, plan a program in the same way. So it very quickly becomes a personalized thing. And therefore, because you're putting so much effort into it and because it's an expression of who you are, um, it therefore becomes very precious to you. So imagine if you have a kid and someone comes along and says, actually, you know what? My kid's a lot better than your kid. How are you going to feel about that? You're going to feel rather defensive. You're going to be reluctant to relinquish it and so on. So in science, although we are in theory objective and ruthless and impartial, actually being humans, um, we can be not just conservative, but frankly biased in favor of our own work simply because the investment of time that's gone into it. So yeah, I think that's, that's, that's really a big issue. So that said, I'll now say my child, I'll now bring out. <laughs> um, so I think there is a, a, a clear path that we can tell a clear story. If one accepts this idea that these hub cells, we'll call them, these brainstem cells, which are different from other cells, if they are damaged in some way, they respond differently from how other cells in the brain will respond if they're damaged. Everyone is familiar that if you have a stroke, you get partial or near complete recovery of function because other brain cells take over. So why is it then that neurodegeneration occurs? It is not a generic property of neurons. Can't be. So what is special about the cells that are lost that means that if they are damaged, they embark on this remorseless cycle of self-destruction that we call neurodegeneration instead of just letting their neighbors take over. Now, as I mentioned, these brain stem cells, and there's now, I could show you about 20 different papers from 20 different groups showing that the damage can start there, including the tau pathology, by the way, um, starts in these brain stem cells. If they are damaged, they'll respond in a way that the other cells in the brain aren't able to do. They will respond by trying to grow again. Fantastic. Isn't that what you want? The trigger for cells to grow, the ultimate trigger, is the entry of calcium into the cells, okay? um, which then mobilizes a lot of processes within the cell that promotes the growth of these so-called neurites and processes and so on. However, too much calcium in the cell, if it's not used properly, will go into the powerhouse of the cell, the so-called mitochondria. And if that happens, then it stops the normal powerhouse of the cell, the energy making. That will cause a leakage of electrons, which then causes something called free radicals, which then destabilize the cell membrane. So that's how the death will occur. Um, just if anyone is taking calcium supplements, please carry on doing so. This has nothing to do with calcium. Because <laughs> <laughs> often people are so worried, who've got osteoporosis, worried about this. No, it's the entry of calcium within the neuron that is the issue, not the amount of calcium you're taking. Yeah. Um, so what, what happens then is in the mature brain, if you've now had some damage, and this could be caused by free radicals where the scavenging mechanisms are no longer as efficient, it could be caused by blow to the head, and we know there's enhanced... Uh, issues with neurodegenerative disorders and blows to the head, for example, with boxing. Um, or it could be caused by um, toxins. It could be a whole host of factors. And rather than trying to tease those out, what I think is a fruitful approach is to say once that damage has occurred, 
irrespective of the reason, now let's trace the course of events. And if these mature cells are responding by trying to grow again, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot if neurons can do that. Um, so yeah, by, by they're trying to compensate and the calcium going in now, instead of being uh, Dr. Jackal, will be Mr. Hyde. And so more cells will die, and more cells will die because they're desperately trying to compensate for the damage, which is why, as Gary said, it takes 10 to 20 years. Now, the crucial issue is to define what we think is the chemical because then you could have hope. If we can stop any more cells dying, it's not going to give you back the brain of a 16-year-old, but even if you already have neurodegenerative disease, you could say, look, we'll just halt it in its tracks, take medication every day, it won't get any worse. Even better... If we, once we know the fundamental mechanism, as I would like to think we did, my child, um, then one could look for a so-called biomarker. And if wonderfully that biomarker could in some way be detected in blood, then the following scenario could happen. You could go to the doctor, like I'm sure many of us, like I do, for a cholesterol test say, every six months. Very simple routine blood test. And the doctor says, well, I'm afraid there's good news and bad news. The bad news is, um, according to my chart here, you've got an elevated biomarker. I predict in 10 or 20 years' time, according to this chart, or perhaps even less, probably less, uh, you will have um, dementia. However, the good news is we have a medication that stops any more cells dying. So if you take the medication <laughs> now before you have the symptoms, the symptoms will never come up. So the scenario would be um, a simple blood test accompanied by an oral medication. Now, I would like to stress that is a dream but it is a dream, so nonetheless, that would be socioeconomically viable. Remember, I come from a National Health Service country. Um, it involves nothing that's ethically questionable, as, as for some, with stem cells and so on. Mm -hmm. No complex um, machinery or intervention. So that is a doable dream. It's a doable dream, but it is still a dream. But that's what we're working on. So I, you know, yeah, here we go, challenge. <laughs> first of all, I, I, lo I love that, it, that you have this novel mechanism, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm very excited about mm -hmm. your approach. And I, you know, I think... The bad news is we don't have a blood biomarker. The yeah. good news is I think we have a brain biomarker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the technology I described, mm -hmm. what's great about it, the one we invented measures both the plaques and the tangles. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, you mentioned head trauma. We've been doing recent studies of uh, professional football players, mm -hmm. and we can see a different pattern in their brains that uh, differentiates it from mm -hmm. Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. And that's another big issue. That sure. we, you know, If we have time, we can sure. touch on it. Mm -hmm. Head trauma. In, in the elderly, yeah. it's a big problem. 20% uh, uh, of those head traumas are from falls mm -hmm. in the elderly. So I think you know, I was sort of bashing the brain imaging a moment ago in a way because we don't have it paired to a specific treatment. Mm -hmm. But this kind of, uh, at this point, brain biomarker could help us with drug development. So you yeah. have this wonderful novel oh, we mechanism. We should start, we should start yeah, collaborating, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because then we can detect those people very early on who would be yeah. the most likely sure. to respond, and we can track their response. Yeah. I, I should add to this. Um, I, I want to stress, because in this world where everyone is in love with genetics, um, what we're talking about here is actually saying this is what causes it. Not that you're likely to get it, but you have it. Yeah? And mm -hmm. if you have it, we can stop it. That's the dream. I should also add, I know this is primarily about Alzheimer's, but these special cells I was talking about, these brainstem cells, what's very interesting, if indeed they are the cause, the culprits, that explains something else that the traditional amyloid theory cannot explain, which is why do we often see a co-pathology with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease are a mind disorder of movement characterized by muscle rigidity, tremor, and akinesia, a, a poverty of movement. Um, and the reason could be 
and indeed ALS to a certain extent, as it's mm. called in this country, because all the key cell groups are all next to each other. Now, they're all adjacent in, uh, in this so-called brainstem. So one can imagine damage to one area, get Alzheimer's, damage to another area, get Parkinson's. If, sadly, the damage is extensive, you'll present with both. You'll yeah. spread with so, again, the reason I like my own theory so much is because, <laughs> is because it does explain a riddle that the other theorists... And in science, what you have to do, as um, someone called Thomas Kuhn said, um, with the notion of a paradigm shift, you have to explain all anomalies. If you cannot then you have to have a sort of scientific revolution, a so-called paradigm shift. And I think, I don't know if you'll agree, I think whether I'm right or not, um, there's too many anomalies at the moment for the amyloid hypothesis to be correct. And I think we are on the, on the verge of a paradigm shift. But, yeah. but just to com complete the answer to your question, partially, mm -hmm. is that we do know in rare cases what causes it. There is a genetic mm -hmm. mutation. Yeah. So there are families that are relatively rare where 50% of the relatives get the disease, usually early in life. We call it autosomal dominant families, mm -hmm. and there are these rare genetic mutations. But that doesn't affect. Is it one gene, or is it a? There are several class different class genes. Class. Okay. There's actually an amyloid precursor protein gene, which is one reason there's been such a hot pursuit of amyloid. But there are other genes affected as well. For the vast majority of us, there are what we call genetic risks. And so one of them, the, the major one that's been studied, is called APOE. Mm -hmm. And 20% of the population has this genetic risk. But it's neither necessary nor sufficient to cause the disease. And in fact, I mentioned lifestyle earlier. Uh, there have been studies showing that if you have this Alzheimer's genetic risk, if you exercise more, yeah. you have less amyloid in your brain. That's actually what yeah. I was going to ask you yeah. about next. Is can you talk yeah. a little bit about you know, what, thing, what mm. pe things people can do to stave off yeah. or to kind of slow these kind of things? So physical exercise is tremendously important. You don't have to become a triathlete. Uh, one study found that walking 15 minutes briskly each day will lower your risk for Alzheimer's. Mental stimulation is very important. Mm. Uh, I'll be teaching some memory techniques to compensate for age-related memory decline, which can be very effective. Stress management, I know there's a lot of mindfulness training here uh, during the, the festival, and I would encourage you to go to that. And of course, uh, nutrition is critically important. So you want to eat fish a couple times a week. It has anti-inflammatory omega-3 fats, antioxidant fruits and vegetables, pomegranates, uh, berries, strawberries, and so forth are great for protecting your brain as it ages, and also trying to minimize the refined sugars and processed foods, which are not great for your brain. Yeah. There's something also very interesting about exercise, physical, strong physical exercise, the work of Rusty Gage. There's a brilliant, um, brilliant group here in the States, and they've shown, contrary to, again, dogma, in the old days when we were learning about the brain, what you were probably taught as me was that you were born with pretty much all the cells you're going to have. Right. Yeah? We now know that's not true. We now know there's something called neurogenesis, which is that an area in the brain, actually one that's implicated in Alzheimer's, so-called hippocampus, that actually can um, have new cells made in it, so-called neurogenesis. You have a proliferation of cells yeah. there. Now, that, the rate of neurogenesis is increased with exercise, uh, which is nice to know. Um, and interestingly enough, it goes down with clinical depression. And bear in mind, one of the cardinal features of clinical depression is um, a disengagement with the world, an inability to want to exercise. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and I find it very interesting on a more philosophical uh, point, which we don't have time to elaborate right now, which is this notion of 
um, you know, engaging with the outside world and actual mood and how that relates. But the fact that that can actually be related to the proliferation of more brain cells has to be a good thing. So yet again, exercise really is a good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, a bigger brain is a better brain, and many studies show that physical exercise will actually grow your hippocampus. But let me put a word in for mental stimulation, because I'm thinking about I'm not, it. I'm not knocking mental no, stimulation. No, I know no, you're no, not, no, no, but I'm no, thinking no. about it because no, of your, no, your English no. accent, the famous <laughs> London taxi driver oh, yes, study. So. so they found that London taxi drivers, the more years that they drove the taxi, the bigger their hippocampus. And what was interesting, it was the right side of the brain. And the right brain is a visual spatial brain. You have to tell them, though, that London taxi drivers are not necessarily like other... They, I don't know about um, the taxi drivers here in Aspen, but, um, uh, but in London they have to undergo a two-year... It takes about two years to learn all the streets of London by heart and the one-way systems and so on. Yeah. So um, I, I think in other places they might be more the work. control group, you know. Yeah. For the, yeah. so, so we're going to be looking at Uber drivers. Yeah, yeah. When you speak of yeah. mental stimulation, you always hear about crossword puzzles, mm. things like that. Is that sufficient, or do you need to be like reading deep philosophy, like really getting into something, or? So, look, you know, if you have a choice, if you have 10 minutes and you can do a crossword puzzle or you can exercise, exercise. Yes. Because okay. the evidence is stronger for exercise mm -hmm. than mental stimulation. Okay. But having said that, one of the innovative studies we're doing right now at, the, at one of our uh, collaborative uh, sites, the Motion Picture Television Fund, is we're taking older people and we're putting them on stationary bicycles and getting their hearts going when they're in the zone. And once they get to that area where their heart is pumping, then we're having them practice their memory techniques. So we're going okay. to see if there's a boost by doing the two together. Yeah, I, I think also there is a problem with the very word exercise. None of us like it, you know, whether it's mental or physical. It sounds like a chore you have to do. No, well, no, just, yeah. So, for example, personally, I discovered squash, which is not like exercise, you know? It's just fun. Because there's a ball? And yeah, well, because you, it's fun. You're not on a treadmill. It's about like life anyway on a treadmill, you know? You, go, <laughs> and you pay money to go on a treadmill again. Yeah. Who wants to do that? Yeah. And so, again, what I think... Um, is great. I mean, for me, a very good source of stimulation is having arguments with people. That's a very good well, mental stimulation. Yeah, well, yeah? There, yeah. there, was a, there was a study because where they... Because you're using a lot of skills. They, compare, they compared a stimulating yeah. conversation for yeah, 10 yeah. minutes versus w watching a Seinfeld rerun. There we go. And you know what the answer yeah. was. Yeah, and even better, one more study at Harvard, um, anyone who's employees here, they found that the subject, employers, they found that the subjects, when offered the choice, right, between a monetary reward and the opportunity to talk about themselves, <laughs> they chose, yeah, you're right, they chose the opportunity to talk about themselves. So it's something people like to do anyway. Yeah? So, yeah. so it's a win-win. Right. You save money if you're an employee. You say, no, talk about yourself for half an hour. <laughs> you won't get the pay rise. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> well, I think the last question I wanted to ask before we yeah. turn it over for questions was, uh, what are you most optimistic about with regard to treating these diseases, halting neurodegeneration, things like that? And what are you most pessimistic about? Well, I think one of the things in our favor is the grain of the world. I mean, that people okay. are aging. And we've got, in this country, 76 or so million baby boomers who are coming of age. In 2011, they started to turn age 65 when the risk starts going up for Alzheimer's disease. So we have a tremendous lobby, a huge age wave that is very interested. And I think they'll be investing in this. They'll be pushing the scientists to work harder and do better. And I think we have a lot of interesting 
leads around the world where people are working very hard. One of the things we didn't really touch upon that much is timing of the intervention. Uh, and so, you know, if you look at, say, I mentioned anti-inflammatory treatment, we didn't get a chance to talk about estrogen and so forth, but if you look at some of these studies, you find that there's an association between, let's say, taking estrogen replacement therapy or taking drugs like Motrin or Advil and having a lower risk for Alzheimer's. And so what happens is, a, is the scientists will test those drugs or hormones and people already have the disease and it doesn't work. But you find if you do studies when people are milder, we studied an anti-inflammatory drug in people with normal aging. Guess what? After 18 months, their brain function looked better and their memory was better. So there's a sweet spot where some of these interventions may have a bigger impact and less of an impact. So I think we're getting a better picture of the overall trajectory of brain aging and Alzheimer's disease. We've got a lot of smart people and we've got the demographics in our favor. Any pessimism briefly? Well, you know, I think, you know, another thing I'm optimistic about, by the way, let me add, because I tend to be an optimistic guy. I'm Fair optimistic enough. about while we're waiting for science to catch up, there's a lot we all can do right now. I mean, I don't need to wait 20 years for a Framingham Alzheimer's study to tell me, hey, Gary, you shouldn't be smoking and you should be exercising. Yeah. We can start doing Basic that. common sense. Day, we can start so, doing yeah. that right, right now. We're working, you know, with policymakers. We're trying to develop programs that are cost efficient, that we can roll out to other health systems so we can motivate people to start living a healthy lifestyle. Okay. So I'm optimistic about that. The pessimism is that in general, if somebody comes to see me and I say, well, you should start exercising and eat right, they'll say, well, do you got a pill for me? You know? <laughs> so I think yeah. people in general, they don't want to do it, but we can find ways to make it fun. Okay, hmm. right. okay so I'll start with the pessimism because it's always nice to end up with the optimism. So right. um, I think part of the problem, as I mentioned, is the scientific mindset where one's pushing water uphill to try and sell novel ideas. That's not to say people should wholesale, you know, swallow anything that you come along with, but if you come along with a credible story and uh, lots of backup data with it, um, it's a shame that one has to fight as one does. A very good example of that, nothing to do with neurodegeneration, was a man called Barry Marshall in Australia in the 90s, where he was convinced ulcers were not caused by stress, which was dealt with with Zantac, which was a blockbuster drug at the time. He was convinced it was a bacterium. And people walked out of his seminars. He was starved of funding, despite the fact he had very strong data to support it, simply because it was going against the dogma and because the drug companies, um, of course, were going to be compromised commercially. In the end, in the end, he took a solution containing the bacteria and gave himself an ulcer to prove it. And he then won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Now, I personally don't want to give myself Alzheimer's by you know, proving a point. And it'd be really nice if it was a way of convincing the scientific community and, and people generally um, to let in the famous words of Mal, a thousand flowers bloom, as you said. You know, so even if I'm not right, wouldn't it be great if instead of people focusing on the same thing they focused on for the last 10 or 15 years to no effect, to entertain, to think about paradigm shifting, novel approaches to the whole thing. So that's where I'm pessimistic. Um, I'm optimistic because I think this is a solvable problem. It's not like um, you know, inventing a time travel machine or a perpetual motion machine or, mm. or something else that I really am excited by is how the brain generates consciousness. And if you talk about serious problems, that's up there with the Greek economic crisis. You know, it's almost completely insolvable. Whereas, whereas this, um, you know, one can see a critical path. One can see if we do this and this and this. And, okay. you know, so far I feel, as, you know, I don't know if Gary agrees, that our approach has at least some traction. Mm. The big problem, incidentally is, again, so much money goes into research for heart disease and cancer. By comparison, that for Alzheimer's is truly the Cinderella. And I think it's because even now, 
despite the wonderful work of someone like Terry Pratchett, who was a writer who came out and said, people are still, they don't like talking about it. In the old days, my mum talked about the C word, meaning cancer, because she thought if she said the word cancer, she'd get it, you know? Right. And I think people still feel if they discuss and talk mm -hmm. about this, it's going to, the gods are going to suddenly inflict it on them in yeah. some way, you know? And I think one of the big problems, we need to get rid of that taboo. That's why I'm delighted everyone's here talking about it. But people have to put more resources in because, sadly, science is expensive. And uh, it doesn't just come with a, you know, a few kind of sealing wax and string anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it does require a lot of resources to do this. Okay. And especially to translate a good idea to something someone's going to put in their mouth takes a huge amount of resources. Okay. And you know, one needs a lot of um, you know, momentum there, I think, which isn't at the moment okay. apparent. Yeah. OK, yeah. well. Thank you both. Yeah. Okay. And now I think we'll turn it over, and there's already a line people oh, scrambling. Okay. Uh, I thought they were leaving. What are your reactions to the narrative out there about the rise of the use of Stantons and the lowered cholesterol and the lower fats and the relationship to that and Alzheimer's? Well, I'll start with this. I mean, we know that people who take statin drugs to lower their cholesterol have a lower risk for Alzheimer's disease. So in general, it's, it's a good thing. If you have high cholesterol, you should take your medicine. The same thing is true about hypertension. So these are simple things you can do. You can follow the medical regimen that's approved, and that makes sense. Now, the, the issue comes, again, it's this, you know, this question, when do you have Alzheimer's disease, when do you have normal aging? There's a fine line. So at what point do we treat people with statins? I mean, what's the cholesterol level that makes sense to protect their brain? Now, by the way, when they've used statins to treat people with Alzheimer's dementia, it doesn't work. So that's, again, too little, too late. So I think this is a controversial area. We don't have all the answers. Another thing people should be aware of, that rarely someone will start a statin drug and it will cause a memory side effect. So if you start the drug and you get a little confused, then you ought to talk with your doctor and maybe switch to a different compound. So I don't think we have the answer right now with statins, but we may in the future. Yeah, and I think epidemiology can be a mindful of this. So, uh, when you think about all the different things over the last few years, um, I don't know, with the chances of getting this and that going up with breast cancer and so on, you know, that there's so many factors and so many studies need to be done. Um, I think it would be dangerous to say, oh, if I take statins, I'm not going to get dementia. I think so, so just to explain that a little bit yeah. more about epidemiology, yeah. so what we do, we, okay. we do these studies with... Thank you thousands of people in the community, and we find out what, what medicine you're taking, and we figure out if they have dementia or not. And then we find an association between taking a drug like a statin and not having dementia. But that doesn't mm. prove a cause and effect exactly. relationship. To prove that, you've got to do what's called a double-blind placebo-controlled study. So that means that it's double-blind. Neither the doctors or the patients enrolled know who's getting a real pill and who's getting a placebo, an inactive pill. And that's important because, guess what? Placebo works about a third of the time, but it's only temporary. Can I just say about placebo? It's one of the great excitements that shows the immune system and the endocrine system and the central nervous system must interface, which is obvious, otherwise you'd have biological anarchy. But the whole point, yeah, the whole point is that we now realize, and pharmaceutical companies realize, the power of thought and mental processes. And that's something, mm -hmm. again, that I think is a I very underexplored area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next question. Well, in cardiology, you know, they have preventative um, medicines, daily aspirin, um, statins, to prevent heart disease. 
Um, is there any, even though the double-blind studies aren't out there, are there any quotidian drugs, um, herbs, ginkgo, aspirin, anything like that, that you would recommend people to keep maintain brain health um, after the age of 50, um, to keep the brain as good as possible, even if it doesn't prevent Alzheimer's? There's, there's someone called David Smith in Oxford, who is actually an old colleague of mine from a long time ago, although we've taken separate paths, and he promotes folic acid. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, because... Uh, what that does is combat something called homocysteine, uh, which actually helps you not have heart attacks and, and cardiovascular. And, but the amounts of folic acid you have to take are truly heroic. And that has been uh, and, so industrial amounts of folic acid to show. But he has got some promising results um, in terms of brain shrinkage and showing with heroic amounts of folic acid. That's the only one I know. <coughs> so I think aside from that, we don't have a lot in this area. Uh, you, one principle to keep in mind is what's good for your heart is likely going to be good for yeah. your brain. So good heart health will transfer to good brain health. Uh, you know, the, the studies looking at anti-inflammatory drugs, and some have included aspirin, uh, do show this epidemiological association, and, and the studies tend to show that in normal aging, they may be brain protective, but actually once somebody has dementia, they can actually accelerate cognitive decline. So there's a tipping point, and we don't know when that tipping point is. And the other problem with recommending these medicines as a preventive approach is they have a lot of side effects, and we don't have enough evidence to start giving them to everybody. There'll be a lot of problems. There's also a difference between taking something because perhaps you have a deficiency and taking something in, in mega doses. So, for example, there was a great phase at one stage for taking vitamin E and vitamin C as antioxidants. Um, because if you have these so-called free radicals, these molecular rambos that sort of attack, um, by taking vitamin E and vitamin C, that helps against it. But one shouldn't confuse that with thinking that if you take mega doses of vitamin C, you're not going to get a neurodegenerative disease. Mm. At the risk of sounding ignorant, I'm, I'm inferring that Alzheimer's and dementia are the same thing. 70%, 70 and, of dementia is Alzheimer's. And that what we used to call senility is normal aging, when my 90-year-old so, father-in-law starts forgetting which grandchild he spoke to a couple of days ago, so but, them, them, but isn't, doesn't, isn't being aggressive or walking out in the night or doing anything inappropriate. And, and, and then there's the sort of people having long-term memory but less short-term memory. What is it we should worry about and what is it we shouldn't worry about? So you just asked three questions, so you're testing our short-term yeah. memory. That's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> but I've but I got to tell you, you know, even before you opened your mouth, I knew you were going to ask that question because it's not a bad question. It's a very good question. It's confusing because we use all these terms and it's not clear. So let me see if I can clarify it. So dementia is what we used to call senility. It's sort of a generic term that generally means that somebody has a memory or other mental or cognitive impairment to the degree that they need help from others. And a lot of things can cause it, as, as we mentioned. It could be a medical condition. The most common cause, as Susan just mentioned, is Alzheimer's disease. But you can also get it from small strokes in the brain. And we've already kind of described what Alzheimer's disease is, this collection of abnormal protein deposits, the plaques and tangles in the brain. So could you say dementia is a symptom? And it's actually a syndrome. Yeah. A syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. It okay. literally means a loss of mind, dementia. And again, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow when we talk about the neuroscience of the mind. Mm -hmm. It's a loss of mind. Okay. Next question now. Yeah, thanks. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit uh, for, for both of you, or all three of you, how, how technology hurts us. Um, uh, I think a common example I certainly have experienced, and many of us in the room probably have, with your GPS or sat-nav device, um, move to a new area, and I just rely on this thing. So it actually impairs my ability to perform spatial cognition. 
So when I don't have my GPS device, I just simply don't know where I am or how to think spatially in the same way. And I'm, I'm under 50, but uh, this is clearly a problem with me. And so I, I want to efficiently get to my destination, but I also don't want to be kind of hamstrung and completely lost if my phone drops and breaks. So I'm going to start on this because I know Susan has a lot of thoughts about this too. But we, we've been acutely interested in this. Uh, we wrote a book a few years ago called iBrain, How Technology Affects Your Brain. I think Susan has a book on it. Do you have a book on this? Okay, book? so plug, Mind Change, available for signing at 4 o'clock this afternoon, and that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. So my yes. opinion on this yeah. is it's mixed. I mean, it does have negative effects, but there's also huge opportunities with technology. And we did a study we called Your Brain on Google a few years ago where we took older people and we wanted to see what their brain looks like the first time they searched online. We used a functional MRI scanner to look at it, and we found that not much happened the first time. But if they had internet experience, there was tremendous activity, and over a short period of time, we could trigger those neural circuits. So you can train your brain with these kinds of computer programs. There's many studies showing you can improve multitasking skills, you can improve working memory, you can improve your fluid intelligence, ability to problem solve, and you can even use, you know, people, they come in and they say, Dr. Small, I'm worried I can't remember phone numbers anymore. I say, don't worry, keep your phone numbers in your phone, let's learn names and faces, because you don't want to go up to somebody and say, hi, Shirley. You know, socially that doesn't work. It's like here, we're doing this on it. But I think that's the, that's the negative about it. It's interfering with human contact skills, you know, eye contact. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of times we can really solve problems much more readily with a brief conversation than using the devices. But I think even with that negativity, there's a tremendous opportunity with the technology. Okay, so um, obviously I'm talking about this tomorrow, so I don't want to rehearse that apart from give you a few little teasers. Um, one could then take that further and talk about uh, multitasking. We now know that that actually leads to microstructural abnormalities in certain areas of the brain. So one has to question what we think is good and what we think is bad. And um, as someone once said, for every complex situation, there's always a simple answer, and it's always wrong. And it's always wrong. Yeah? <laughs> so I think the same applies here. And it's to do justice to the subject. I'm not just trying to get an audience for tomorrow. I think that, um, as Gary's quite summarized, you know, there's, there's, depends what you call good and bad. You know? so, but certainly, what you need to know is the human brain has the evolutionary mandate to adapt to the environment. If you're in an environment that is now very different from other environments in all previous decades, then you are going to see changes. Whether they're good or bad is, of course, up for debate. Since antidepressants have become so ubiquitous, I'm wondering if there's any research on antidepressant use in neurodegeneration. There is, yeah. and in some situations, an antidepressant can help people who have a cognitive impairment and a mood problem. So, and there's also the possibility that some of these antidepressants could help with cognitive health. And in fact, you know, some of the drug development right now, there are a few drugs in the pipeline, uh, tweak neuroreceptors that are in the same family as neuroreceptors that are tweaked with antidepressant drugs. So I think there's tremendous overlap. It's very important if people have depression that they get treatment for it because we know that depression is not good for the brain in the long run. And it not only causes medical problems, but it, it increases your risk for death, not just from suicide, but from other illnesses. Yeah, and we also know that the way antidepressants work is to increase the availability of chemical messengers such as serotonin. Right. And it's these very so-called amine transmitters, that's to say dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, which are the chemical messengers used in these brain stem cells. So one could imagine 
the direct mechanism would be if you are already having dwindling levels of those chemicals because the cells in this crucial area are dying, um, you are now supplementing the availability or enhancing the levels, you might have a temporary respite, a bit like taking L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease where you're supplementing dwindling dopamine levels. My question has to do with the link between Parkinson's and if you could elaborate on that link and whether research dollars that are put into Parkinson's is also going towards Alzheimer's. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I, th I would also include ALS as well. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that for me, I don't want to discriminate. And in my own lab, in my own company, we are still targeting all three diseases because I think they have more in common at a mechanistic level than they have apart. Obviously, the symptoms in the pure descriptions are very different. One is a cognitive disorder. One is a movement disorder. Uh, one, sadly, for ALS is a complete um, problem with movement altogether. They're, all, they're very different, but the underlying mechanism of neurodegeneration, I would argue makes those diseases more similar than they've been previously recognized to be and the fact that you can, can get a co-occurrence of them. You can even get markers, like there's something called alpha-synuclein um, with, with amyloid in the areas um, in Parkinson's. And so, yep. so we know histopathologically there's an overlap as well. Yeah, there, the there's tremendous overlap. People mm -hmm. who have Parkinson's have an increased risk for depression and dementia, just as they mm -hmm. do with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And the lifestyle strategies we discussed earlier also can help with Parkinson's symptoms. Um, I'm wondering if either of you has a theory um, or any information on um, environmental exposures and neurodegenerative diseases, um, endocrine disruptors, heavy metals, the kinds of things that are associated with, uh, becoming more associated with some other diseases. Yeah, the one that comes to mind was in the Garden of Quebec a long time ago where they showed that pesticides um, led to a higher incidence of Parkinson's disease. There's also a study in Guam a long time ago where they found that during the Japanese occupation when people were hungry, they were eating the cycad seed. And that, some 20 years later, um, led to a much higher incidence because the cycad seed contains a cytotoxin. Um, so there have been some studies. I don't know that exhaustively. It's not my area. But certainly there are studies on pesticides and, and th that kind of scenario leading to a much higher incidence. Okay. Well, again, thank you, everyone, for coming out. Let's thank our panelists. Thank time. Good job. That was Susan Greenfield, Gary Small, and Sam Keane recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 2nd, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.